Jesus, I have to imagine, did not always speak in such a carefully crafted, eloquent way. Most of the words that have been passed down to us are recollections of sermons and public debates and quotable wisdom that's been preserved for posterity. But in this text, we're told that Jesus spoke more casually with his disciples rather than drape everything in parables as he did from the proverbial pulpit. Jesus spoke to his friends like friends, speaking plainly without proverbs or metaphors. When the crowds had gone, Jesus spoke more intimately with them. What's the deal with the Pharisees, he might have said. Can't live with them. Can't live without them. It was probably more insightful than that, but you get the picture. Casual talk. Plain talk. In the pulpit, when I preach here on Sunday mornings, I choose my words very carefully. They are crafted into metaphors and stories and parables in the hopes that they will plant a mustard seed somewhere in your hearts. But today, let us speak more plainly. I prefer, given the opportunity, to converse with each of you one-on-one, and I always welcome that if anyone wants to get lunch or a cup of coffee. Um, But for now, queries on note cards will have to suffice. I don't pretend to have any special wisdom to impart, as Jesus did, but I will do my best to address whatever questions you have for me, and I pray that God will use me to speak a true word. Jesus also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all the shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. I'd like to invite Catherine Curtis uh, to help me out here, Director of Christian Education. She's collected your questions and will fire them off at me. All right. I think we'll start with an easy one. Thank you. <laughs> Although you may find it difficult. What is your favorite donut if you had to choose one? <laughs> well, you know, I'm, a, I'm actually, when it comes to food, I, I am and always have been a pretty bland, uh, pretty bland guy. I know that's hard to believe, but um, my favorite donut is actually the Dunkin' Donuts old-fashioned plain cake donut. Hands down. I'm sort of a purist, you know. I, I don't um, put anything on my, my hot dogs or hamburgers usually either because I feel that it dilutes the flavor of the meat, you know. Uh, so same goes for the donut. I really want to taste that donut. What made or inspired you to want to become a pastor? Well, um, I decided for the first time that I wanted to be a pastor when I was 14 years old. Um, 
which is one of the reasons I really value this youth internship program we have. I, something like that would have been really tremendous for me at the time. I was coming out of, as many of you know, eight years of uh, Catholic parochial school um, where I was sort of like the, you know, the black sheep Protestant um, <laughs> in, the, in the room. And um, uh, in ninth grade, when I was 14, I, I went back to my UCC church that I was in in kindergarten and hadn't been back to since and uh, went through the confirmation program, and it was really just amazing and eye-opening, and um, it was the first time since I was a little kid that I got to really explore and live into my own faith tradition, and uh, it was hugely impactful for me. And at that same time, I think, you know, as many teenagers do, you know, I really began to um, ask a lot of big questions about life in the universe, and uh, I was particularly interested in those questions from a spiritual and philosophical lens, less so from a scientific lens. That just, you know, I have the utmost respect for science, but I'm not very good at it um, or understanding it. I don't have that kind of, kind of mind. Um, so I was really interested in things like probably some of the questions you put down here, you know, you know why is there evil in the world? Um, why is there suffering? Where do, why are we here? Where did we come from? Um, who is God? Uh, what happens when we die? You know, I, I began to, to be inundated and fascinated with these, with these kinds of questions, such that um, I sort of lost interest in more practical <laughs> matters. And, um, uh, and I believe it was my mother who suggested me the first time, seeing all this, this interest in my faith, um, that perhaps I should explore, uh, you know, a calling in the ministry. And I had a fantastic minister at that time, Pastor Eric, uh, who um, helped me to figure that out and walk with me. And uh, I took a brief detour um, at about 16 um, on account of a, an annual meeting gone bad um, <laughs> after church. And I thought to myself, geez, I don't want anything to do with this. <laughs> um, but I came back quick, quickly thereafter and decided, well, if there's something you don't like, you should probably work to fix it instead of running away. So um, here I am. Hope that answers the question. We're glad to have you. Thank you. The book of Revelation is full of frightening and violent imagery. What is it doing in there anyway? Great question. Well, you know, there's a lot of violent, frightening imagery all over the Bible. You know, what's it doing in there anyway? I, I think um, when I look at the troubling parts of the Bible, and there, like I said, there are many, um, you could take a couple different approaches. You know, uh, I think it was uh, Jefferson, you know, wanted to just throw the whole thing out except for the, for, except for the teachings of Jesus. Um, there are other people who have tried to do the same thing. I see it all as a valuable record of how people understood and experienced God over time. And uh, in times that were, in many ways, more barbaric and violent, um, people really uh, felt that they needed a strong and, and even violent God who would, who would crush their enemies for them. You know, that was sort of the way the world approached divinity in those ancient times. Revelation itself, to speak a little more specifically, um, I think is really valuable as a historical document because if you can get past a lot of the allegory and metaphor in it, you realize that it's really all about um, 
what uh, the Jews and early Christians were dealing with uh, under the Romans. Um, and that, you know, many scholars will say that this book is really an allegory about Nero and his persecutions um, uh, and uh, that it's a, it's a political document, essentially. I took a fascinating course in seminary on um, apocalyptic literature. And what I learned there is that all forms of apocalyptic literature, whether it's the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation or a variety of other kind of texts within other cultures, uh, texts and practices, they're really all, in a sense, um, a political movement designed to inspire hope for oppressed people who have had their land or their f freedom or their religion taken away from them. They often veer towards um, these apocalyptic texts that serve both as an allegory but also in some ways as a hope that God really will kind of come down and set things right, you know, and destroy their enemies. Which is why I think, by the way, you see very literal interpretations of Revelation in more conservative uh, Christian churches because conservative Christianity uh, is very much, uh, I would say, an embattled form of Christianity. I think they're, they're always sort of, you know, saying, oh, you know, uh, the world's going down the tubes, family values are, are being lost, our religion and religious freedom is being taken away. Um, there's always sort of like uh, an enemy, right, that's sort of moving in on them. Um, so that, that sort of apocalyptic literature is really, it becomes really attractive when you feel that everything's being taken away from you, you know, that God will come down and, and save you uh, from, from your enemies or from your perceived enemies. So it's really a fascinating psychological experiment and, and historical book. Um, uh, it, I caution you against taking any of it at face value. Plus it has dragons, which is pretty cool. <laughs> what is the Bible verse that gets you through tough times? There's a, it's probably not the most comforting verse, but I find when I'm in a, in a rough spot and um, going through a hard time, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm the kind of guy, if I'm feeling down, I don't listen to cheerful music to cheer me up. You know, I listen to the most depressing music I can find because I just sort of have to wallow in it for a while. So biblical texts are kind of the same. Um, so when I'm going through a hard time, I tend to gravitate towards the book of Job and the uh, book of Ecclesiastes. Um, but Ecclesiastes has something that I find, some people may not find it comforting, but I find it helpful, actually. Um, in terms of sort of why me, right, and whatever it is I'm going through. There's a, there's a verse in there that says, um, the battle is neither to the, to the strong nor the race to the swift, but like birds caught in a snare or fish caught in a cruel net, time and chance happen to them all. Um, so, you know, in other words, it's, it's not that I did something to deserve this, or I could have prevented this if I had done that, because I think we so get hung up on the what-ifs and what I should have done or could have done um, in tough times. And this is a reminder that no matter what you do, you're going to have pain in your life, um, whether you're good or evil. Um, and remi remembering that I'm no different than anyone else in that regard, I actually find to be somewhat comforting. 
How do you feel about the Apostle Paul? I feel like I'm missing something. Everyone is all over Paul, like in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> he seems like a sexist, judgmental jerk, even for the times. So my question, what am I missing? That's a great question. I struggled with this for a long time. Um, when I was really first being educated in the Bible in a serious way, um, I really did not like Paul. I thought he was overbearing and strict. And again, yeah, he's got these weird ideas about, you know, women covering their heads in church and all this sort of thing. Um, and he seems so different than Jesus in so many ways. Um, what I've come to understand about Paul and to appreciate about Paul, while still recognizing Paul's faults, um, Paul in some ways is the only guy who could have gotten the job done. Uh, and when it comes to sort of planting the church and spreading the faith, because Paul was a zealous guy. Um, before he became a, a Christian, he was this zealous Jew uh, who, who, who beat up Christians and turned them over to the authorities. And everything he did, he did 110%. You know, this guy, is just, you just can't slow him down, you know. He's just all in all the time, um, which personally I find exhausting. I don't think I would want to hang out with Paul. I don't think I would really be friends with Paul. Um, I think... He's an exhausting guy. He's a super high energy, uh, manic sort of guy. Um, but that's also what it took, <laughs> that sort of perseverance and diligence um, to do what he had to do in terms of traveling the ancient world and planting these churches and spreading the faith. Because once, uh, once he became a Christian, he was all in on that, and nothing was going to stop him. Um, and, and there were a lot of things that could have stopped him. He faced a lot of adversity uh, that required a great deal of perseverance. Um, I don't agree with everything Paul says. I think Paul is an interpreter of Jesus, just like in some ways we all are. Um, and I think he gets it wrong sometimes. I also think um, some of what he taught... So here's a good example. Um, Paul's a big proponent and probably really the the originator of atonement theology, that Jesus was this sacrificial lamb that had to be um, killed uh, to pay the blood debt, you know, that we owe God, um, which has become Orthodox Christianity, you know, uh, Christian belief, and it's not something I agree with or believe in. But, and, and to the extent whether Paul himself believed that in a literal way, I don't know, but he was trying to explain it to the Jewish community in a way that would make sense to them, because they were all over sacrifice and, and blood debts, and, and that, that made sense to them. Um, so a lot of what he was doing was translating what he saw as Jesus and Jesus' message to people in different cultures, whether they were Jews or, or Greeks, um, trying to put it in a way they would understand. And I think some stuff got lost in translation uh, in that process. So, no, I don't agree with everything he has to say, but I ad admire his um, tenacity, uh, even if I wouldn't particularly want to hang out with him. For those of you that are Marvel fans, I have a question. Are you Team Iron Man or Team Cap? Well, I have to confess that I did not see uh, Civil War, the, <laughs> the movie that breaks down those divides. I'm a, I'm a pseudo-Marvel fan. I've seen some of them and not others. 
But uh, if I understand correctly, <laughs> Captain America is on the side of the uh, independence for superheroes and freedom, which, and, and Iron Man is more of the uh, government oversight. <laughs> so <laughs> there's, a, there's definitely a political question in there. Um, Uh, and I'm going to try to thread that needle, as, as I often do. Generally speaking, I tend to be in favor of, um, uh, as a UCC person and a congregationalist, I tend to be a, a supporter of individual freedoms and the liberty of conscience. But at the same time, I also believe government has a role to play in um, uh, ensuring those freedoms for as many people as possible and uh, in regulating things that can otherwise get out of control. So. I guess I'm going to go Team Iron Man. <laughs> that wasn't as easy as I thought. Um, I've also had a request to um, ask you, if somebody wanted to sign up for the Tower Hill Beach Weekend, <laughs> which is coming up on July 13th, 14th, and 15th, where would be a good place for them to sign up on the last day, which is today? It's a great question, Catherine. Catherine was supposed to make an announcement that I forgot to let her do, so, <laughs> so now she's getting back at me. So <laughs> you can talk to Catherine after the service, or I believe you can also sign up on our website yes. or VRE newsletter. Yes. Uh, today's the last day to sign up, and you can do it online under events on our wonderful webpage. Well played, Catherine. <laughs> I have one more question. Uh, actually, I have many more. There's some really great questions here um, that I will be sure and share with Pastor Seth. But this is a question I believe that was asked during our eighth grade uh, Confirmand Q&A and has been resubmitted today. Um, is God gay? <laughs> um, I think we, uh, we have a tendency is natural to anthropomorphize God and to think of God in human terms. Um, uh, because that's in some ways all we can do. We can't really fathom the, the vastness and expanse of God's mysteries uh, and God's nature. Um, so on the one hand, I would say, no, God isn't gay or straight or sexual in any way. Um, God is not a human being. On the other hand, I think there is room uh, to say, and it probably should be said, uh, that at the same time, God is gay and straight and bi and everything else, because God is, um, God is with all of us, and God is for all of us, and God created all of us, and we all have a piece of God in us. Um, and so in that regard, um, God is, is all things, right? Um, but, uh, but we have to be careful, I think, whenever we uh, try to put labels. Uh, we have to. We have to put some labels because that's, that's the only way we can sort of, our minds can um, comprehend things or function. We have to put categories and labels on things. But God really defies um, all of those labels. Someone, uh, one of my mentors said to me once, piece of wisdom I've hung on to all these years, was that... Um, the further you find yourself into a paradox, the closer you are to the truth. Um, and I believe that that's very true of God. You know, God is sort of nothing and everything, right? Um, straight and gay. Um, a paradox. Uh, a paradox that our minds cannot 
really appreciate or comprehend, but, um, but that we nonetheless strive to understand and to love. Thank you, Pastor Seth. That's all the time we have.